according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures this morning. Boy, is it cedar season already? I tell you, getting close. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. And we are dealing with the final verses of this chapter, verses 14 and following, how our Savior partook of true humanity, that He partook of flesh and blood, because we partake of flesh and blood. And uh, the whole exercise of identification is such that He identified with us so that He can become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And we're going to see these things uh, verse by verse as they unfold and hopefully start to uh, appreciate the position that we have in Christ because He identified with us in His first advent. Now we identify with Him in the the church age. The fact that we are baptized into union with Christ at the moment of our salvation is our identification with Him. And the totality of what he has earned and deserved, the totality of his merit and his righteousness, everything that is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is also us seated at the right hand of the Father. And so to recognize how this works I think is powerful. And the book of Hebrews is, uh, is the book that, that lays it out like no other in, uh, in the New Testament. And so this is, uh, this is where we are picking up where we left off one week ago. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask the Father to set aside our distractions, to clear my throat, and do whatever else He wants to do in a way that will glorify Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for Your truth thankful for your faithfulness, and Father, calling upon your faithfulness as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each born-again believer in our dispensation. We thank you, Father, for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who uh, searches all things, even the deep things of God. And Father, it's such a blessing for us to assemble together knowing that uh, the study of your truth is not dependent upon uh, our ability, uh, our worthiness, It's all by your grace. And Father, our understanding is not contingent upon how smart we are to figure these things out. It's entirely about your faithfulness, Father. How faithful are you to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness yet again to open the eyes of our understanding, to humble us under the authority of your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, last Sunday we left off uh, with, if I have the correct slide here, verses 14 and 15, with the therefore, looking at uh, <clears throat> how we have become partakers. So let me just read it again. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share, and that's a koinonia fellowship sharing in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook. And this is the partnership of of metakoi that we've studied also in times past. Since the children fellowship in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And so there's a freedom that we want to understand here that's a separate issue from what we call the positional truth of our salvation in Christ. The wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're thankful for that. And that's, a, that's our gospel. That's a powerful truth. But that's not what this passage is driving at. This passage is talking about the experiential sanctification and the ongoing fear that believers have after they are saved and the power that sin can have in a believer's life after he has been saved. And the principles there when we talk about being saved from the, the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin, and being saved from the very presence of sin, ultimately in the what we call phase three or the third aspect of, uh, of salvation. So when we're looking at this passage here, we're talking about the power of the devil and we're talking about what he has and the power that he has uh, through uh, the, uh, the fear of death to then influence believers, let's recognize that. That is for those that are saved. For those that the devil should have no power at all. And it's sad how many Christians then rearm the adversary who has been disarmed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that becomes ultimately the uh, the tragedy of it all. We uh, covered the first part of this slide a week ago, and I want to get right back to it and then tackle the second part of this slide here this morning. So let's recognize what humanity's Adamic existence was and is. Uh, uh, humanity's Adamic existence, uh, existence. It is a shared blood and flesh relationship. Each one of us is in Adam. Each one of us is descended from Adam and Eve. And that is a shared, what's described here as a shared blood and flesh existence. Okay? And if you want to get into the grammar on it and study the, the perfect tense of this verb, that's what we're dealing with. The children share in, and in English it's rendered flesh and blood, in Greek it's blood and flesh. And it puts it in that order for a reason, I'm convinced. English translators come along and they like to render it with our more common idiom of flesh and blood because that's the expression we're comfortable with and we use it all the time. But it's not flesh and blood, it's blood and flesh in that order, okay, for a reason. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Uh, he himself likewise also partook. And whereas the humanity's shared existence is in the perfect tense, Jesus Christ and his partaking is in the aorist tense. And we do uh, a lot of studies related to that and the grammar of the, the different verb tenses and how they relate together. Recognizing that all of humanity was a lost estate in Adam going back to Adam and Eve. But Jesus Christ at a point of time, at the perfect point of time, entered into his flesh, entered into uh, mortality. We say, according to John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or read the kenosis passage of Philippians chapter 2, that he laid aside his privileges. He humbled himself and he was found in the form of a man. Being made in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. And so we have the, uh, the pattern there. Jesus Christ partook. And, and that becomes significant. If it's not a big deal to you right now, just write it down, chew on it. Uh, sometimes we say put it on the back burner, let it, let it simmer a little bit until it's, uh, until it's finished cooking in your mind. And then a day will come that the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus Christ will become 
uh, significant and you'll start to appreciate it more and more. And perhaps through these uh, subsequent verses as we finish the chapter, detailing the necessity of his identification with us in true humanity. You know, there were a lot of things the angel of the Lord did in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord could come, the angel of the Lord could fly over an Assyrian army and kill thousands in one night. Uh, there were things that the, the burning bush could do or the pillar of fire could do, but it wasn't a burning bush that went to the cross, all right? It wasn't the pillar of fire. It wasn't the angel of the Lord who went to the cross. In all of the pre-incarnate Christophany appearances of Jesus Christ, none of them was suited to do the work of redemption as was the God-man. Our Lord and Savior had to have the true humanity to be our substitute. And that's what we're going to commemorate today at the end of our service. Before we dismiss, we have communion today. And so it's a marvelous application to be made as we recognize the necessity for that. I want to move on though and start to study the the need for this defeat. uh, Humanity's Adamic existence was a dead existence, spiritually dead in Adam. So Jesus Christ defeated death and rendered Satan impotent. Now we want to understand we're talking, there's differences between spiritual death and physical death. And what does the fear of death do? I mean, when we talk about fear of death, is that being scared of, of, a, of an earthly danger? Does that mean we're talking about being scared of, uh, of some kind of harm to our physical life? No, not at all. The fear of death is related to Adam and Eve naked and hiding in the garden. It relates to human beings in God's image that now have spoiled that image. And the fear is the, is the shame that comes with it. And there's the power in that. That's the power that Satan has over each one of us, over even believers who shouldn't be subject to that kind of fear. We should have the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised. And sadly, when we start getting our eyes off of Jesus, we start to fall back into these fear patterns again. And so We'll see uh, some of these aspects here as well in any event. Through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Now keep in mind, this is uh, Jesus spoke about this. I didn't include it, I should have, in John chapter 8 when he said, you will know the truth, the truth will make you free. He was talking to believers and he was talking to those who had believed in him. And yet that fear of death, that power of sin continues to be controlling for uh, believers that don't line up with the Word of God. You'll see what I mean as we work our way through these passages. So let's look at Psalm 89, let's look at Hosea 13, let's look at Acts 2. Along the way I'm going to make sure that we can grab um, John chapter 8 as well now that I think about it. And uh, now that I regret not putting it on the slide, it uh, absolutely should have been there. All right, so Psalm 89, 48. Let's understand, humanity is a dead existence. Humanity's Adamic existence was spiritually dead. Everybody born in Adam is spiritually dead and not worthy of the Father's glory in heaven. All right? Anyway, Psalm 89, Hosea 13, Acts chapter 2. Let's take a look at these. Starting in Hosea. So back to the Old Testament, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Actually, no, I want to start with Psalms. Psalm 89. Let's start there. Psalm 89. All right. Long psalm, long chapter. Get down to verse 48. 
Now, in some of these we have verses that speak of physical death, and in some of these we ask ourselves, now wait a minute, is there a larger picture in view? Is there something beyond physical death that's in view? And I think clearly in many of David's writings that is absolutely the case. Um, here I think that we, we have more of the physical death that's in view. Verse 48, uh, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? All right. Now do we limit our understanding of this passage to physical death only? Or do we recognize that while we're living we are dead? While we're living in Adam, we are already spiritually dead and we need a Redeemer. We need a Savior who's going to save us from the power of death. Here it's called the power of Sheol. In Hebrews it's Satan who has the power of death. Now there's a larger context with respect to Psalm 89 that really uh, deals with God's faithfulness, deals with His covenant. He's not lying to David. It rebukes the fallen angels. There's a a, a tremendous context here for... for, uh, Psalm 89 that we just don't have the time to get into in a, in a circumstance like this. But this is what we're talking about, all right? So when you have a death passage, read it for what it says and then ask yourself, am I li- does the Bible limit this verse only to a physical death circumstance? Or is there a bigger picture involved that would include spiritual death, the need that we have for a Redeemer? And you're going to find more often than not that that becomes the issue. All right. How about um, Hosea? Now we can get to Hosea 13, 14. See, if I'm not careful, I'm going to spend the whole time in Psalm 89 and then it'll be communion before I know it. So um, Hosea 13, 14. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. 13, 14. All right. The iniquity, uh, let me back up to verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? compassion will be hidden from my sight. So here too is a passage that all too frequently we just read through and we think, okay, physical death. And we think, okay, uh, the, the answer to this is, is resurrection. And it gets quoted in 1 Corinthians. And we limit the understanding here, failing to see that there is a power in view and the power is spoken of in present time. And we realize that that reality is an issue that believers have to deal with. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Where we can be ransomed now. I, I, you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have already been ransomed. That power is removed. We can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and that power is gone. That fear of death is gone. That shame of being a fallen creature is gone. Presently now. See, and that's the reality we should be operating in presently. Today, all day, every day. And yes, when we die, then we're going to be resurrected and we'll be with the Lord. Yes, there is another side to look beyond physical death. But the bigger point is, how am I living now as a delivered one? How am I living now whereby that power is, uh, is gone? I've been ransomed. I've been redeemed. 
And so uh, I think it's a bigger picture than just physical death. Like I say, um, we see more of this as well. Now before I get to Acts 2, let me stop uh, briefly at uh, John 5, or John chapter 8, because I think this connects and will hopefully let us see that when you're saved, now you got to start growing. You've got to start walking in the Word. You've got to start being a disciple. Then you will be set free. Don't confuse the two different kinds of freedom that we're talking about, the positional and the experiential. That's where I think far too many people blend them and then they end up lost and then they end up confused. And then they read a warning passage in Hebrews that's dealing strictly with the experiential and they think it means they're going to lose their salvation and die and go to hell. All right, no. We're going to keep things as separate as we can with the positional deliverance, the positional rescue, the positional salvation, the positional freedom as opposed to the experiential freedom, experiential salvation, experiential rescue, experiential deliverance. You followed all that? Positional on the one hand, experiential on the other. And when we're talking about this power of death and the fear of death, we're talking on the experiential basis whereby Satan will use that against us and we we should stop letting him. We should stop letting him. All right, so in Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8, He's talking to those who had believed him. There's, there's a moment in verse 30, he's had uh, several messages. He's revealed himself as the light of the world. Uh, there's arguments uh, among the, the Pharisees. There's a crowd that's very hostile to him. And yet some within that crowd actually listen and apply faith and get saved. And uh, we see this clearly in verse 30. He said, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. All right, many. And this is who he now starts to talk to. So in verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Now, again, this is uh, is with careful reading. It should be obvious and should be clear. He's not talking to the larger crowd, crowd. He's limiting this next message only to those with the divine viewpoint perspective, that in other words, they're saved. Now they've got a, a, a uh, something else they want to start uh, pursuing. Uh, some arguments will start flying at them from the larger crowd, but that doesn't change who he's addressing in verses thirty-one and thirty-two. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, "If you continue in my word, notice it's an if, and not all of them will, but some will, and those who do, then." are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, then, the consequence, if then, you are truly disciples of mine. Now, we, got, we, if we can't let go of this. If we let go of this, we're lost. If, we're let, if we let go on this, I think then we start to blend positional with experiential. I think we start to then blend and confuse the difference between being born again and being a disciple. They're not synonymous. There are many born-again believers that are not disciples of Jesus Christ because they are not abiding in the Word of God. This passage gives the requirement for discipleship as abiding in the Word of God, the, the imperative to meno, abide, remain, continue, dwell in the Word of God. Then, on that basis, you are truly disciples of mine. And as a consequence... As a disciple, you will know the truth, and the truth will, future tense, make you free. 
So this is a freedom that the people that got saved in verse 30, they don't have this freedom yet. They are saved. They did believe. They are free from eternal death. They're free from the lake of fire. They're free from the penalty of sin. But they still are awaiting a future freedom from the power of sin. That's the experiential application we're talking about. All right? And so uh, here too is why you end up with so many carnal believers. You end up with, uh, with born-again saved people that are not abiding in the Word of God and they are not saved experientially freed from the power of sin in their lives. And they're beset by the same sin nature they were beset by before they got saved. Because they never let the Word of God renew their thinking. They never let the Word of God transform them, mold them into the image of Christ. All right. As far as that goes. Now if you want to follow up on that on Wednesday and you want more questions theologically related to that, let me know. And we can go into that on Wednesday night because there is a school of theology that says, well, they were never saved to begin with. Okay? They, they proved they weren't saved to begin with because they didn't persevere to the end or something of that nature. But verse 30 says they believed. And verse 31 says Jesus spoke to those who believed in Him and, and gave them a criteria by which they could become disciples. Not every believer is a disciple as far as that goes. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Do they have to get saved a second time? No. This is the experiential freedom from the very power of sin. And he describes that to them. When you see in verse 34, Jesus answered, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Okay? And that's what we're talking about. The power of death that Satan has. The slave uh, of sin. We need to be rescued from that. We Experientially. We need to be delivered from that power of sin day by day when we let the Word of God transform us in who we are. Alright, so we have that. That's John chapter 8 verses uh, 30 through 34. How about that? Alright, so it's not on the slide but you can add it yourself and, uh, and take that from there. How about Acts 2.24? Acts 2.24 And we want to ask ourselves some things related to death. Is this limited to physical death? Is, this, uh, is, there, is there also a, a larger application as it pertains to spiritual death? When did he take up his spiritual life again? Which, uh, which death possibly had power over him? Neither one of them did. Okay. All right. Uh, context for this, uh, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Alright? Do we limit this to physical death? Is this all about physical death and physical resurrection? Or does it have a bigger component? Does it have a larger thing in view? Like the spiritual death that he accomplished on the cross. The agony of that spiritual death. Not the agony of the physical death. Okay? The agony. What was the agony? What was the agony when he went to his disciples and he said, my soul is deeply troubled to the point of death? What was the agony? See? You know, and, and yes, I, I get it. Crucifixion is painful. Nails hurt. All right? I got that. 
But he said, Tetelestai, it is finished before he physically died. The agony was the spiritual death when he was separated from his father. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the, in the sacrifice of his own soul, he laid down his life. He endured that, the wrath of God and died spiritually for our redemption. And then he took it back up again. It was impossible for him to be held in the power of death. Anyway, we have applications there as well. When he said it is finished, he said that spiritually alive. He took up his spirit again and said, it is finished. Then he dies physically, gives up his spirit, says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And application there. All right? So are we on track? He's done both. Both are in view. The physical death, we want to understand all those components, everything that relates to physical death, but spiritual death. We want to understand those components. Everything that pertains to spiritual death. And we want to make sure that we're not, we're not mixing and matching, that we're not confused. It's tough. I, I freely admit. Because the, the, a lot of the Psalms, a lot of the passages seem to be speaking of physical death until maybe it's because we have Hebrews and we have the New Testament. We're able to look back. We're able with hindsight to see the, the full spectrum of Scripture that we say, wait a minute, there's a bigger issue involved here. And that's the power of death. That's the power of sin. And we want to be saved from that today as disciples that are living in the Word of God. Okay, And so then, then once we have the larger picture, I think we do ourselves some huge favors. We end up not scaring ourselves with certain passages that might scare other people. We also end up fully appreciating what it's saying when we're not afraid to read it for what it says. Okay, With humility, receive the word implanted that is able to save your soul. Okay, And you're sitting here as a believer, you say, well, I'm already saved. Yes, but with humility, receive the word implanted that is able to save your soul. Keep on saving your soul. Experientially save your soul day after day after day, saving you from the power of sin in your life. And I hope that makes sense as well. The um, Romans, Romans 5, Romans 8, more passages. We looked at these uh, a couple weeks ago related to life and death because we were studying in Philippians, we were studying life and death. Uh, Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. That took us into a whole life and death series of verses that we were looking at. So if you're with us at the 9.30 hour or on Wednesday nights, then, uh, then you've seen these verses very recently. But as we look at these verses, remember we've got passages here that speak of life and death. And again, far too many Christians are reading these and limiting their understanding only to physical death physical life. And uh, on that basis, then I think they end up um, maladjusted to what the scriptures are truly saying. And, and, and really, it's not even fair to the text itself. They damage the text itself by switching all of a sudden to, uh, to a different kind of life when it gets to life in Christ from the death that they've been reading about here, the death in Adam. Okay? And so in Romans 5, now I, I realize I listed 14, 17, and 21 as specific verses within chapter 5, but realize there's a larger context there. The reason why I wanted to spotlight those verses is because those are the verses that speak of power. They speak of the power of death, as in the power of Satan that we're looking at in Hebrews chapter 2. So pay attention to that. Um, all right, so what am I saying now? Romans chapter 5. And uh, where, where are we? Let's pick it up with verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man 
Sin entered in the world and death through sin. Okay, we're talking physical death there? Or is it a bigger picture? In fact, I don't think it's physical death at all. I believe this, that there is no physical death anywhere in this chapter. I think it's all spiritual death in, with respect to the consequences of sin. So just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, era's tense. We were all in Adam. When Adam sinned, we were all there. We all sinned in Adam. We were all spiritually dead because of not Eve's sin. She sinned first. But Adam sinned. And then their eyes were opened. And then we all, positionally in Adam, became spiritually dead. The Adamic existence is a dead existence. And it's described here. And then um, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned. Do you see that? The power of death reigning. This is the operational power of death as fallen creatures are under the uh, subjection of Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the power Satan has over this fallen world. Death reigned, as it says. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. So here's our contrast of life over death. And it's spiritual life. It's our born-again spiritual life. That's the answer to spiritual death in Adam. When you're in Christ, you're spiritually alive. When you're in Adam, you're spiritually dead. It has nothing to do with whether you're physically alive or dead or not. Say. In fact, I think it presupposes you've got to be physically alive to get saved, to believe in Christ, to receive eternal life. All right. And so here too comes the power that life has and for over the power that death has. The power that Christ's righteousness has for our experiential sanctification, for our ongoing walk. And so uh, we have that too. Again, verse 17, there's uh, power, there's reigning If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. That's the power that Hebrews 2 talks about, the power that Satan has, fear of death. The uh, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So if you want the power of Jesus Christ to reign in your life, That's more than just being saved. Let me tell you, Jesus said it, abide in my word. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. It requires the ongoing experiential sanctification at that point. Um, Again, death through the one, life through the other. Death through the one, life through the other. Uh, Verse 18, through one transgression resulted condemnation to all men. You realize that? The unbelievers that die and go to hell, they're not going to hell for their own transgressions. It's nothing they did. It's the transgression of the one that the many were made sinners. Condemnation to all men. And so you encounter somebody, I've encountered somebody, I want to give them the gospel. They say, oh, you don't know what I've done. I've had people tell me, oh, I, I can't be saved. You know, I've done too many things. I've done this, I've done that. See, and I don't care. It's not about what you've done. All right, grace is grace. And none of us earn it or deserve it. It's not about what we've done. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, either condemning us or saving us. Okay? It's a powerful principle. 
And so uh, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification. Again, God in His grace condemns all Adamic humanity, so God in His grace can justify those that are in Christ. For as through one man's disobedience, verse 19, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Uh, Verse 21, there's uh, again power, there's reigning. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I don't think anything in this verse is addressing physical death at all. I think everything in this, this whole chapter is all about the spiritual death in Adam, the consequence of the fallen nature, the consequence of sin, the spiritual death in Adam. And the way that it's contrasting death and life, and for those that want to do the, the, what's called an illegitimate totality transfer, if they want to assign every kind of death imaginable, including physical death, if they want to assign all kinds of other deaths to the death side of this chapter, then to be fair, logically, they have to assign every kind of life to the life side of this chapter, which means that nobody has physical life until they become a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, that's nonsensical. How would that happen? Okay? And so uh, hopefully then on, on this kind of basis we can approach matters of death and life understanding the power that spiritual death has over Adamic humanity, all right? So then, then we can embrace the power that spiritual life in Christ has for redeemed humanity. We've got to use that power all day, every day. We're going to walk in that power. It's that power, it's knowing the truth and the truth setting us free that gives us a victory today, tomorrow, the next day, every time the sin temptation comes to us. All right? Nothing at all to do with uh, the, the, the evangelism moment of, of getting saved. That's, that's one moment. Uh, the experiential salvation is again and again and again, all day, every day, uh, for, the, for the rest of our time on this earth. Okay, Romans 8, 15 through 17. Romans 8, 15 through 17. And uh, again, talking about power, talking about what we have in Christ. Just another passage here that I appreciate. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's what happens as an unbeliever. You're in that realm of fear. You're in that realm of spiritual death. Satan has power over that fear. He can manipulate that fear. That's not us now in Christ. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When Satan tries to use his power of the fear of death to derail us, we just cry out, Abba, Father. That's our provision. We have this uh, power that's available to us. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, what a blessing. Not afraid of that power at all. Laughing at, at that power, in fact. Some of the hymns speak to that. We just laugh at it. That's our uh, position in Christ. Also, of course, Philippians 3.10. We've been talking about this a lot. Our citizenship is in heaven. thought I'd throw it here in case... Uh, you're 11 o'clock only and you've been missing out on a lot of the, the great meat that's coming in, uh, in Philippians. But you know, there's a power that Paul wants to know about experientially, presently. And he says, um, talking about uh, walking by grace and 
discounting all these other things that other people might find confidence in. Anyway, there's a verse here, Philippians 3.10, that says, that I may know Him. Well, doesn't He already know Him? Paul, aren't you saved yet? Okay. This is experiential, not positional. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. This is the power that's going to work on our behalf even when Satan and his power of death is trying to derail us. No, no. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. I'm now inoculated. I'm, I'm, I, I don't care about Satan and the power he has over Adamic death. I'm now in Christ. And that power can benefit me today. I don't have to sin. If I walk by the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is a power available for you and for me. We need to use it today, tomorrow, every day so we're not overwhelmed by these sin temptations when they come in. So this is knowing Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is He dreaming about someday dying, physically dying, and then someday physically being resurrected again? I don't think at all. This whole thing is in the present tense. He wants to attain to that today, walking today in that newness of life, walking that resurrection walk now. Body's not resurrected yet, but His walk is the resurrected walk in Christ. All right, so that's, we'll get to that when we get to the Philippians application. All right, now and then verse 16, Hebrews 2, 16. Hebrews 2, 16. See, this is our blessing. To take, to take a text, it's talking about death, and then just ask ourselves, now wait a minute. Do I limit this to physical life? Do I limit this to physical death? Is there a spiritual dimension behind this that we want to recognize here and now? All right. So verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Assuredly, and the word give help lays hold of. Assuredly he does not lay hold of angels, but he lays hold of the seed of Abraham. I'm going to render it take hold of or lay hold of and handle it on that basis. Not a, not a helping term, but a laying hold of term here. All right, what are we dealing with? The purpose of Jesus Christ to come in His humanity, to be laid hold of, to be held in the Father's right hand, to be seated at the Father's right hand. To which of the angels did He say, sit at my right hand? To which of the angels did He lay hold of and say, you are mine? None of them. Only Jesus Christ in His victory. Only Jesus Christ is the one that the Father takes hold of. God the Father does not take hold of angels for the beloved right-hand servant. It's His Son. It's His beloved Son. He begets Him, He sends Him, and He receives Him back, and He lays hold of Him in His right hand. That's where we are in Christ. At the Father's right hand, in the Father's right hand. And so uh, we have the principle here. It's, uh, we've already seen it in verse 5. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. It's all about the Son. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Father's purpose. He does not take hold of angels for the beloved right-hand servant. He takes hold of His beloved Son. And this is what verse 16 is dealing with. He gives help to the seed, singular, to the seed of Abraham. 
Jesus Christ is the Father's right-hand messenger. And in, what, a, what a blessing. Something he's been prophesying for years and years, prophesied specifically through many of the prophets, but I think most uh, specifically through Isaiah. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 44. In fact, there's a whole section of Isaiah that goes up to the, the suffering servant in chapter 53. We've got the servant being spotlighted here. That's the Father's right-hand servant, the Father's beloved servant. And it can only be Jesus Christ. It cannot be an angel of any kind. It is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so what are we dealing with? How about Isaiah 41? I'm not sure how far we're going to get with this because Communion Sunday just goes by so quickly. Isaiah 41. When it comes to the choice of the Father's right hand, I mean, how much doctrine goes into this? When you study, why is Benjamin given his name? <laughs> why does Jacob not content with son of my affliction? He says, oh no, son of my right hand. And he names him Benjamin. What does it mean to be the Father's right hand servant, his beloved servant, his beloved messenger? Because none of the angels qualify for that. He even taunts them. He dares them to do what only his beloved servant can do. And when they can't, he uh, then says, okay, <laughs> I've got one on the way. My son is the one that will accomplish all my good pleasure. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing to watch how these prophecies in Isaiah come together and then they sit there and they wait until the birth of our Savior in Bethlehem. And they wait until he steps forward to fulfill everything that these prophets have been speaking to. Alright, so uh, see how far we get. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 44. Like I say, we can read this whole stretch going all the way to the, to the suffering servant in 52 and 53. But you'll see what I'm talking about here. Because there's angels that may think they can do this. There's angels that may think that their plan is, is the equal to what the Father has planned. And they're just lying to themselves. All right, Isaiah 41. Uh, picking up in verse 21, skipping the previous context for this. Uh, verse 21 says, Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. You see that? It's a challenge, it's a taunt. He says, all right, go ahead. Give it your best shot. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. He's taunting fallen angels. He's taunting the, the powers behind the idolatry of of Isaiah's day. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. If they're God like he's God, then they can tell the end from the beginning. Tell us what's going to happen. And uh, when they do, then we may consider them and we may know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, he says, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. <laughs> All right. So, so much for any of these guys being the messenger of our Father's right hand. He is not going to select any of these guys. Uh, the one who chooses you is an abomination. So, you think it's going to be an angel? 
that's going to be the son of his right hand, that's going to be the one the father grabs hold of? Not at all. Uh, chapter 42. Um, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who do you think this is talking about? Okay. Sound familiar? He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. I read this passage a lot when we have communion service. Okay. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. But he will faithfully bring forth justice. All right. This sounds like a guy that the Father would take hold of in his right hand. This sounds like a beloved servant, a faithful servant. The, um, there's other, uh, if I just read through this. Um, verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand to watch over you. Who do you think this is? Is this an angel? Who is it that Yahweh holds in his hand? It's our Savior. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. See, Satan wants no part of this. He wants to keep us in the prison. He wants to keep us in our darkness. It's power of death that he, he thrives in that. That keeps us under his, under his thumb. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. This becomes a whole sermon on its own. If he will not give his name to another, and not share his glory with another, but he does share his glory with the Son, he does exalt his Son with a glory above every other glory. Okay? Anyway, there's doctrine there. And, uh, and so, clearly, it's Jesus Christ is the one that's held in the right hand of God the Father, even as you and I are held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. How about chapter 44? I skipped over one in 43. Now let's get to one here in 44. You know, he continues to mock, he continues to um, taunt the fallen angels, the ones that think they can be like him. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, verse 6, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Okay, who is like me? That liar from chapter 14 that said, I will be like the Most High God, not him. Okay, none of those fallen angels. A third of the fall, a third of the angels followed after Satan, and they're now in open rebellion. And none of them are like Yahweh. None of them are like the one true God. But he taunts them. He challenges them. He gives them an opportunity. He says, "Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it." Yes, let him recount it to me in order, from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Going back to the angelity past, going back to when God the Son was there. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. God the Son was there. He was there in the beginning. He was there as a part of all this. 
All these fallen angels, they can't declare the things that are going to take place. Ultimately speaking, I think this is what drove the whole satanic fall. The things that are going to take place, they wanted no part of it. The idea of being diminished, being a ministering spirit sent out to render service for the sake of those that will inherit salvation, Satan said, no way. Not at all. Looking at humanity as weak as we are, what is man? And the the angels are going to serve man? No. I believe the fallen angels rebelled completely over the things that are going to take place. And so here's the Lord taunting him and says, all right, what's your story? You tell me what's going to take place. And then we'll watch it as it happens and we'll know who the real true God is. Because God's plan is the one that's going to go forth. Not Satan's. You know, he, he proclaimed his five I wills and guess what? He's 0 for 5. It's a terrible batting average, right? 0 for 5. None of his I wills have happened or ever will happen. But when God says what will happen, guess what? It does. So he's taunting them. He says, yes, let them recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming, the things that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Don't you just love that? That's beautiful. The the omniscient God who knows everything and he says, I don't know about any other gods. (laughs) I know of none because he is the I am. And all of these posers, all of these phonies, all of these um, fallen angels that magnify themselves constantly, that are constantly setting themselves up as as, uh, having a better plan than the Father. All right? None of them. To which of the angels did he say? sit at my right hand is to the Son. The Son and the Son alone is the Beloved One. God the Father did not take a hold of any of them. He took a hold of the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Not only that, let me add something else to your thinking. I want you to chew on this in the coming week. He takes hold of the seed of Abraham, but in so doing, who else does He get? He gets us because we're in Christ. When he takes a hold of the seed of Abraham, he gets us as well. The bride is in Christ. And so if the son is seated at the father's right hand, where are we seated? Positionally, we're at the father's right hand. We're in Christ. So I'm going to assign these to you for homework. I I should have, you know what, if I was really slick about this, because look at how many of those are in Isaiah. A lot of those come into, into play while we're looking at the fallen angels he's rebuking, at the same time, there is a servant that he's just celebrating. There's a right-hand messenger that he's exalting. All right, I'm going to keep going until I see Molly. She's going to be my clue. (laughs) When she comes in, then then I know that uh, we've got to go to communion. Let me just back up here real quickly. Spot these verses. Write them down, and then this week, go look them up. You know, in verses 8 and 9, it's my chosen. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, seed of Abraham, my friend. All right? Verses 9 and following, you'll, you'll see a chosen servant. We already saw quite a bit from Isaiah 42, this servant, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. All right, I got that one. Outsmarted myself. We read those ones already. 
Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. How about Isaiah 43, 10? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me. There's a servant in 49, 1 through 7. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named me. No angel was in a womb. All right, this is our Savior and the humility of His virgin birth. And so you can go through uh, verses 1 through 7 there. Uh, Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. What names? Names for our Savior. He was the despised one, abhorred by the nation. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Who has Yahweh chosen? None of these angels. But He's chosen Jesus Christ. He's chosen God the Son. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. It's His servant. All right? That's who we're celebrating. Finally, Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. None of the fallen angels was qualified to do this. None of the fallen angels was humble to do this. But Jesus Christ is. He is the beloved servant. He is the one that is laid hold of by the Father's right hand. So again, Hebrews 2.16, He does not lay hold of angels, but He has laid hold of the seed of Abraham. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for this truth. Uh, this truth. And Father, there's a lot here. Sometimes I think we're drinking from a fire hose. But help us, Father. Help us to distinguish between physical death and spiritual death. Help us to distinguish uh, when a passage is talking in the angelic realm versus the human realm. Help us, Father, to rightly divide, to see a much larger picture than, than we normally think about. Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank You for His humility. Because He humbled Himself, as we're commanded to do, He humbled Himself under the mighty hand of God so that He would be exalted at the proper time. So too we, Father. We humble ourselves. The exaltation will come. But for now, Father, we are humbled. We are delighted. We are thankful. It is our joy, Father, to walk even as He walked. So teach us these doctrines. Help us to identify the arrogance for what it is, the snare for what it is, the power of death for what it is. Father, we want none of that. We want the power of the resurrection working on our behalf all day, every day. So, Father, thank you for this message. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.